Well, I'd invite you to open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1. And I'll begin by reading our passage for us. Verses 13 through 16. Follow along as I read 1 Peter 1 beginning in verse 13. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior, because it is written, you shall be holy For I am holy. During the terrible Chicago fire of 1871, the great evangelist D.L. Moody's house burned down. As Moody surveyed the ruins, a friend said to him, I hear you lost everything. To which Moody replied, Well, you understand wrong. I have a good deal more left than I lost. His friend was puzzled and asked, What do you mean? You're not a rich man. Moody then opened his Bible and he read to him the promise from Revelation 21.7 which says this, He who overcomes shall inherit these things, and I will be his God. At a moment when it seemed like Moody had lost it all, he still had hope. He had hope of a future. And where did that hope come from? It came from the confident reality of His salvation that no one could take away. Since He had been saved by God, He knew that all in His life could be lost. But there is still hope. Because His hope wasn't dependent upon the things of this earth. His hope was dependent upon Upon his salvation. And that's what Peter wants to remind his readers of here in our text this morning. He's writing to believers who are under persecution for their faith in Christ. But who need to be reminded of the hope that they have and how they need to live then in light of that great hope that they have. Now, before we get into these four verses, verses 13 through 16, let me just remind you of the flow of thought of this letter and what Peter has been saying. In verses 1 and 2, we saw how Peter was reminding his readers that they had been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. They belong to Him. These persecuted believers, they belong to God. Not because of anything that they had done, but because they had been chosen by God. 
Then in verses 3 through 9, Peter describes salvation and how amazing it is. And how they are rejoicing. Peter knew this, that they were rejoicing in the fact that they had been saved by God even though they are in the midst of great trouble. Then the past couple of weeks, we saw how Peter in verses 10 through 12 told them about how magnificent salvation is. It's a great salvation that we have. The great theme of salvation is something that the prophets studied, the Holy Spirit inspired, the apostles preached, and even the angels longed to look into. And in all of those verses, verses 1 through 12, as Peter writes, the verbs that he uses in these first 12, ver- these first 12 verses are what we call indicative verbs. They are indicative verbs. That is, they are verbs that are used to describe things. They're descriptive verbs. They tell the story. They tell how things are. But now in verse 13 and on, we'll begin to see a transition in the verbs that Peter uses as he begins to use imperative verbs. Imperative verbs. That is, verbs that are used to give commands. He's no longer describing how things are. He is now giving commands. And he's telling these persecuted believers how they are to live in light of the circumstances that they are in. And because of the magnificent salvation that they've been given by God, there is an obligation that's placed upon them on how they are to live. There's a certain way that they're to respond even though they're living in a time of great persecution. You see, oftentimes we will use trials to try and excuse our sinful behavior. Think about that. We'll use the trials that we're in to excuse sinful behavior in our own lives. Someone may be going through a difficult trial and they become angry or bitter or even fall into other sinful habits. And we'll often use that difficult trial to excuse their behavior. Anger is a sin. Bitterness is a sin. And we'll say things like, well, don't you know what they're going through? Or, oh well, I mean, I couldn't imagine going through a situation like that. And we excuse their sin. That trial becomes an excuse for sinful or slothful behavior. But Peter knows that trials are no excuse for this kind of behavior. In fact, in the midst of the trial, we need to not focus on the trial, but we need to focus on the reality of our eternal destiny. We need to focus on our standing before God. The relationship that we have with Him. We need to focus on the reality of our salvation, which will in turn remind us of how we are to live so that we respond in a godly way in the midst of a trial. 
Remember, we weren't saved so that we could live our lives however we want to live them. God did not save us and then say, now, just go fulfill your own desires. Go live how you want to live your life. God didn't do that. In fact, we're saved to live in obedience to Christ and bring glory to Him. In fact, Peter has already reminded us of this back in verse 2 where he says that we were chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to do what? Obey Jesus Christ. We are saved to obedience. Not by obedience, but we are saved unto obedience. And now in verses 13-16, through Peter will tell us of two responses that we must have in light of the great salvation that we've been given. He's going to tell us how we can obey God. How we can live our lives in light of this salvation. These here are two responses that we must always have, whether we are in a trial, in a difficult situation or not. These are two responses that should be constants in our life. Because these responses are not dependent upon whether or not we are in a trial. But these responses are dependent upon the reality of our salvation. Our being right with God. These responses are our obligation to God because of what He has done for us. Because He has saved us. So what are these two responses? Well, let's look at the first response. Response number one is this. You are to live with hope. You are to live with hope. Notice what Peter says there in verse 13. He says, Therefore, Stop right there. We need to unpack this. You see, we should read this word here, therefore, which is a term of conclusion, and understand that he's concluding something that he's already written about in the last 12 verses. The writer here, Peter, is telling us how we are to respond in light of what we have just read. And this word should cause us to stop and to ponder. Whenever you see that word, therefore, stop. It's put there for a purpose, for us to stop and to ponder. And to ponder what has just been stated. Go back and read what has just been stated. That word, therefore, could also be stated this way. Because of this thing, or for this reason... That is, in light of what I have just told you in the past 12 verses, you therefore are to respond in this way. What is it that Peter has just told us? Well, back in verses 1 through 12, as I said, Peter used indicatives that gave us doctrinal truth. He's given us doctrine. He laid a foundation, a doctrinal foundation for us on which we must live our lives. What doctrinal truth did He tell us? Well, He told us we've been chosen. That we have been chosen by God. As believers, it was God's choice of us. He's the one who chose to save us. 
by His foreknowledge. He also has told us that we have been born again to a living hope. We have been born again by God to a living hope. He told us it's Christ's death and resurrection that has brought this about. He's told us that we have an incorruptible inheritance and a magnificent salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last days. Now, in light of that, here is how you are to live. Here is how you are to respond. And what is it then that you and I are to do? Well, look look at the next part of verse 13. Notice what Peter says there. He says, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, notice that phrase there, fix your hope. You see that there in verse 13? Fix your hope. That is the main verb here in this sentence. That is the imperative. That's the command for us, that we must fix our hope. We are to be people who are filled with hope, a fixed hope. Now what is hope? One, came, one commentator says it this way, the, the word hope, or the hope called for, is a personal attitude of expectant reliance on what God has promised He will yet do. One way that we could define hope is this, listen, it is confident expectation. Hope is a confident expectation. You see, oftentimes we use the word hope with zero confidence, right? We use that word hope and we have no confidence. That's our modern day use of the word hope. We'll say things like, I hope that this will happen or I hope that that will happen. And yet inside there is much doubt about whether or not that will actually come to pass. We hope, but we have no confidence. But that's not biblical hope. That is not what biblical hope is. Biblical hope is a confident expectation that then moves us to do something about it. One commentator says it is an expectation strong enough for one to act on the basis of it. It's a strong expectation a confident expectation we don't have hope and then do nothing about it but we have hope and because we are so confident about what is to come it then moves our will to act and as peter is commanding these believers and us to fix our hope this is not just something that affects our emotions But it moves our will and it calls for obedience. This is the duty of every believer. We are to be a people who are living with hope, a fixed hope, a confident hope that what God has said, He will do. In fact, notice that Peter says, Fix your hope completely. You see that there? 
fix your hope completely. That word completely means fully or perfectly. And it calls for a hope that is not half-hearted or filled with doubt, but a hope that leaves no room for doubt. There is zero uncertainty about what God has promised. And what is it that He has promised? Notice what Peter tells us here. Grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That there's grace that is to be brought to you when Christ returns. Now, what is Peter talking about here? Well, Peter's already told us what this grace is back in verse 10. Notice what he says there in verse 10. He says, As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace, you see, there's that word, the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries. What is that grace that Peter's talking about? It's salvation. He's talking about salvation here. It's the inheritance that Peter talked about in verse 4 that awaits all those who belong to Christ. And what has brought about this hope? The salvation that we have in Christ. What brings about hope in your life? The salvation that you have been given by God that will be revealed when Christ returns. So here's what Peter is saying. He's saying this, we must live our lives having a confident expectation about our salvation in Christ that is to finally be realized in the future when Christ returns. And implied in this is that there's a confidence regarding the future return of Christ. Listen, church. Is Christ going to return? Yes, He is. We can be confident of that because He's told us in His Word. And why is that important for us to know? Because that will be the time when our salvation is finally complete and we are glorified. You see, there's an aspect to our salvation right now in which is not fully realized, not fully complete. We are saved by God, and yet we still what? Sin. We still sin, all of us. We're not glorified yet. We're not perfected yet. But there is a day in which we will be glorified. Where we will be perfected. And when is that day? When Christ returns. When He returns, we will be resurrected. All the dead in Christ will be resurrected. All those who are alive at that time, believers will go to meet Him in the air and will be glorified for all of eternity. That's the hope that we have. That's when our salvation is finally complete. And we will never, ever, ever struggle with sin again. Never. 
That's the glorious reality of our future. That's the hope that we have. That we will be with Christ one day. And we will have zero struggle with sin. We will be perfected. Now, think about this. What would cause a believer to doubt the return of Christ? What would cause a believer to doubt the return of Christ? I'll tell you what does. Suffering. Persecution. Trials and tribulation. That'll cause a believer to doubt the return of Christ. And that's exactly what Peter's readers are going through, right? They're going through persecution. You see, the suffering that we endure can cause us to begin to doubt God. The pain is so hard to endure that we can become uncertain about God's perfect plan for us, right? You even see this in the Psalms. In Psalm 88, the psalmist is in a time of great affliction and suffering. And he says this in verse 13, But I, O Lord, have cried out to you for help, and in the morning my prayer comes before you. And then he says this in verse 14, O Lord, why do you reject my soul? Why do you hide your face from me? You see, even the psalmist had felt like God was silent in his suffering. Like God had left him. As he cried out to God by day and night. It was this feeling as if God has rejected him. What does that cause us to do? To doubt God. God, are you really with me in the suffering? God, are you really with me? In the persecution, in the tribulation, it can cause us to begin to doubt. But what Peter is telling us here is don't lose hope. Have a fixed hope completely on Christ. Fix your hope upon Him. Just like the psalmist in Psalm 88, he never lost hope. Although he asked those questions, he never lost hope. He continued to cry out to God by day and by night because his hope was in him. He knew that God had not left him. Although there were times where he felt like maybe God had left him, he knew in his mind that God had not left him. He had hope. And he needed to continue to have hope And that's what Peter is commanding these suffering believers to do, to continue in their hope. Things may get difficult, but don't lose hope. Don't ever lose hope. Have a fixed and complete hope that does not doubt. Christ will return, and God's perfect plan will be accomplished. Because He's promised it. And our God cannot lie. Now, you may have noticed that I skipped over the first part of verse 13. And I skipped it because I wanted you to see what the main command here is in this verse. That you need to live with hope. But now, we'll come back to the first part of verse 13 because this tells us how we do this. 
how we do this. Notice what Peter says there at the beginning of verse 13. He says, therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. There are two things that we are to do. One is an action. The other is an attitude. He tells us of an action and he tells us of an attitude. And the first action that he tells us there is to prepare your minds for action. The Legacy Standard Bible says it this way, Therefore, having girded your mind for action. Or the New King James says it this way, Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind. Gird up the loins of your mind. And that conveys better the picture that Peter is painting here for us. For us today, this may be a confusing picture because we don't gird up our loins. We don't do this. So let me help you understand the picture that Peter is painting here for us. You see, in Peter's time, men did not wear pants or shorts. They wore a long robe or a tunic that went down past their knees. But if you wanted to move in a hurry, it would be hard to move with all that material hanging down there. And so, they wore a belt around their waist. And they would take the long material hanging down and they would gird up or tie up their robes around their waist, around their loins, so they wouldn't get all tangled up in their garments. This would make it easier to work or to fight in a battle if they had to go in battle or to run or to move quickly. They needed to do that. And that's the picture that Peter is painting for us here. That's what Peter is telling. Gird up your loins. And what Peter is saying here is it needs to be applied to the mind. It needs to be applied to the mind. Our minds need to be girded up. Our minds need to be ready for action. Just as that man would gird up his loins, he's now ready for battle. He's now ready for action. He's ready for work. And that's what Peter is saying here, with your mind. Gird up the loins of your mind. Be prepared at all times in your mind. And what Peter is saying here is, don't get all tangled up with the worldly things. Don't get tangled up with that stuff. And notice Peter here focuses on the mind. Church, listen, the mind is so important. Our mind is so important. There are too many Christians who have their mind cluttered with all kinds of worldly things that when a trial comes along, they don't know how to handle it because their mind isn't right. Their mind is filled with all kinds of worldly junk, stuff. So they don't know how to respond. The trial comes along, the tribulation comes along, here comes the suffering, and they don't know what to do. And they will even begin to doubt God. Because why? Because their mind isn't right. Because their mind is cluttered with all of this worldly stuff. Peter's saying, don't get all tangled up with worldly things. John Calvin points out here that Peter equates the loins with the mind. 
The loins are the abdomen region where the core is. It's the place of strength in the body. I've been reminded of this recently with all of my back problems. As the chiropractor reminds me, strengthen the core. Strengthen the core. It's the seat of strength physically in our body. But Peter is here talking about the strength of our mind, having mental strength. One commentator says, it's a call to bring all of one's rational and reflective powers under control by cutting off vague, loosely flowing thoughts and speculations that lead nowhere and only hamper obedience. Peter's calling for these believers to have a disciplined mind. Discipline your mind. You'll hear people say that you need to have an open mind. No, you don't. Don't have an open mind. Close it and fill it with God's Word. Put God's truth in there and keep it closed so that when the trial comes along, what's in there? The truth of God's Word. And you'll then respond rightly. Don't let your mind go. Close it. Discipline it. Strengthen it by filling it with the truth. Fill it with God's Word and watch and see how then you respond in difficult times. You see, loose thinking leads to loose living. Loose thinking leads to loose living. If you let your mind be filled with all kinds of worldly things, then when you're in a time of testing, that is what is going to come out. You'll respond in worldly ways, in sinful ways. You'll behave in a worldly manner. But if your mind is strengthened and filled with God's Word, then your response will be godly. You'll respond in a way that honors Christ, in obedience to Him. How does this tie in with the hope that Peter commands? Well, as your mind is fixed upon the return of Christ and the salvation that will be finally realized, it will help you to respond in a godly manner when trials come. Your actions will be dictated by how you think. And it all starts where? In the mind. It all starts in the mind. And it's the mind then that calls us to action. But then there's an attitude that we're to have as we live a life of hope. Notice Peter says in the middle of verse 13, keep sober in spirit. Keep sober in spirit. Oftentimes we hear the word sober and we think of drunkenness, right? Think of drunkenness or the opposite of drunkenness. And a drunk person is a person who has lost self-control. They've lost all self-control. But Peter is not specifically responding to abstaining from alcohol here. But what Peter is saying here is that you need to be self-controlled. You need to be self-controlled. Another way that we could say this is that you need to be level-headed. You need to be level-headed. This here is self, spiritual self-discipline. 
This is a person who is not extreme. Who doesn't respond in extreme manners. But someone who is calm and steady and evaluates things correctly. To be sober in spirit. Live a balanced and well-disciplined life and be steadfast in your spiritual state. So that when trials come along, you don't begin to doubt and to live with uncertainty about God's promises, but you're able to handle those situations with a steadfast mind and an understanding that God is still in control. Your hope is fixed upon Him and the promise of His Son when our salvation will be finally complete. He's saying, prepare your mind and be sober. Practice self-control. Be self-disciplined. And fix your hope on Christ and His return. And so our first response to God's grace is to live with hope. But there's a second response that Peter tells us here in our passage. And the second response to God's grace in our lives is to live in holiness. Not only do we live with hope, but we are to live in holiness. Look at verse 14. Notice what Peter says there. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. We saw Peter's first imperative, his first command in verse 13, fix your hope. And now here's the second imperative found in verse 15 where he says, be holy. It's a command. Be holy. Not only are you to cultivate hope in your life, but you're also to cultivate personal holiness. As we hope in Christ and His return, we also desire to become more and more like Him, right? That should be the desire of our hearts. In fact, isn't that what Paul tells us in Romans 8? As to why God has predestined us and saved us? Romans 8.29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. Our response to the salvation that we have been given is to become more like Christ. To be holy. That's what we are commanded by God. Now, notice what Peter says at the beginning of verse 14. He says, as obedient children. You see that there? As obedient children. A better way to translate this is, as children of obedience. As children of obedience. You see, Peter is not so much congratulating them on being obedient, but he's reminding them of their nature as children of God. He's reminding them of their nature. They are children who are characterized by obedience because that is their nature. In Ephesians 2.2, Paul calls unbelievers, listen to this, sons of disobedience. Unbelievers are sons of disobedience. But believers are children of obedience. That's our nature. That's how you can tell the difference between a believer and an unbeliever. 
Want to know how you can tell the difference? Look at their life. Are they obedient or are they not? Their nature will come out. The believer's nature is to be obedient. And the unbeliever's nature is to be disobedient. Believers are characterized by a life of obedience. Unbelievers are characterized by a life of disobedience. If you continue to see a life being lived in disobedience to God, it's most likely they are a son of disobedience. They're not a child of God. But as believers, our life is to be characterized by obedience. Yes, we understand that there are times where we will fall into sin, but how does a believer respond? We repent. We turn away from that sin. And we desire to live in holiness, in obedience to God. Therefore, as believers, our lives are to be characterized by obedience to Christ. That is the pattern of our lives. And how we live in response to God's grace in our salvation. Peter writes this to remind his readers of their nature as God's children as he commands them to pursue holiness in their lives. Now, how do you do this? How do you be holy? How do you become holy? Well, Peter gives a negative and a positive obligation here in this command to pursue holiness. The negative is, don't do this. The positive is, do this. Pretty simple, right? Don't do this, do this. Lays it out for us. How do you pursue holiness in your life? Notice again verse 14. Don't be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance. The first thing to do is to stop living like you used to live. Stop it. Stop living that way. Stop living the way that you lived before you were saved. When you lived according to the ways of the world. Remember at that time you were children of disobedience, right? Before we were saved, we were children of the devil. Not children of God. And we were following His ways. And we were following after the ways of the world. But He saved us. And Peter's saying, now don't go back. Don't live that way that you used to live. You've been changed. You're now children of obedience. So don't live in the ways that you used to live. In fact, isn't that what Paul tells us in Romans 12.2? He says, and do not be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You see how important the mind is? Be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. The first way to pursue holiness is to stop living according to the former lusts, Peter says. What does he mean by that? He means the, the passion... The desires, the evil desires, or the appetites that used to consume you before you were saved. All those evil desires. Don't go back. Stop living in those ways. 
Don't live that way. Don't do the things that you used to do when you lived in ignorance. What Peter means by ignorance is the time before you knew God and His ways. When you were ignorant of God and His ways. The time before your salvation. When you were ignorant of God's ways and you lived according to the world's ways. It was that ignorance that stimulated your depraved desires. And what did you do? You obeyed what? Those desires. You obeyed those desires. What is Peter saying here? Don't do that. Stop it. Pretty simple, right? You want to pursue holiness? Don't live like you used to live. Don't live in sin and disobedience to God. So what do you do? Notice verse 15. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. Notice first of all who Peter gives as the standard of your living. Notice this church. He doesn't say live better than your next door neighbor. He doesn't say live better than, live better than your boss or your co-workers, or even your pastor. He says, like the Holy One who called you. Who is that? It's God. That's God. Peter gives a divine standard of holiness here. That's where we are to look as our standard of holiness. Not to our next door neighbor. Not to the person sitting next to us in the pew. Not even to your pastor. You're to look to God. He is the standard of holiness. That's God's nature. He is holy. He is a holy God. And as the Holy One, He loves all that is pure and good and He hates all that is sinful. God hates sin. So how should you act? Love all that is, God, that is good and pure and hate all that is sinful. In fact, that's what Peter says at the end of verse 15. He says, be holy yourselves also, notice this, in all your behavior. Notice not just in some of your behavior. Don't be holy in just, you know, these few little areas in your life. But he says, in all areas in your life in all of your behavior what's peter saying here he says that there aren't excuses for unholy living there's no excuses we have been commanded by god to be holy as one commentator says there should be no part of our life which is not to savor of this good aroma of holiness. We should love holiness and desire holiness like a sweet aroma in all areas of our life. And although we cannot become perfect in this life, that does not give us an excuse to stop moving forward in the process of holiness. Remember, We were saved to be conformed to the image of Christ. That's that's the direction that we're to continue in. 
to be holy, to pursue holiness. Then, Peter gives the justification for our holiness. Look at verse 16. Peter says this, Because it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. This is the justification for the command to pursue holiness. And notice this is not something new. This is not just a New Testament command. But what does Peter do here? He quotes from where? From the Old Testament. Specifically, he's quoting from the book of Leviticus. Which, by the way, do you know what the theme of Leviticus is? One word. Holiness. Holiness. That's the theme of Leviticus. That's exactly what Peter quotes from. In fact, one commentator says Leviticus was written to instruct the nation of Israel how she must live and worship as God's chosen people in response to His holiness in order that He might dwell among them and that they might attract the world to Him. That's what Leviticus is all about. It's God commanding Israel to live in holiness so that they would be a nation who would attract the world to God. To say, I want that God that you worship. He's real. He's done something in your life and and I want it done in my life. I want to know that God that you're pursuing after. And we're to live in holiness in response to God's holiness. And this is fascinating. This phrase here, you shall be holy for I am holy, it's quoted three times in Leviticus. Three different times. It's found in Leviticus 11.24, in 19.2, and in 20.26. And in 11.24, it's used in connection with the dietary restrictions under the Mosaic Law. You shall be holy, for I am holy. In 19.2, it's used in connection with social and religious duties. In your social and religious duties, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And then in Leviticus 20.26, it's used in connection with immorality. You shall be holy, for I am holy. And it was used to show how Israel was to be distinct from the rest of the nations. In all areas of their life, they are to be distinct from the other nations. And isn't that what Peter just commanded us? Just told us? Be holy yourselves also in all of your behavior. In every area of your life. We are to be holy. As children of God, we are to be distinct from the world. We're to represent Him on this earth and bring glory to His name by living in accordance with His commandments. We're to live holy lives because the God who has called us and saved us, He Himself is holy. You see, that is to be the motivation for our holiness, church. That is to be the motivation for our holiness. It's not to make ourselves look better than other people. It's not why we pursue holiness. So we can look better than our next door neighbor. 
We don't even pursue holiness out of a, a fear of other people. Oh, I better be holy or I'll look bad before them. They're going to have bad thoughts about me. They're going to think I'm a failure. You see, that's all for self-gratification. Those are selfish motives. So that I can look better before other people. But the motivation of our holiness is not to be that way. The motivation of our holiness is God Himself. Is Christ as we look to Him. As we remember His return. That He's coming again. That Christ could come at any moment. How do I want to be living my life when He returns? I want to be living in obedience to Him. That's what should motivate us. It's looking unto God Himself that should drive us to holiness. And when we remember what He has done for us, that He has saved us from an eternity in hell under His divine wrath. Out of a heart of love for Him, we should strive to be holy in our lives. How are we to live in light of the salvation that we've been given by God? Peter tells us that we are to live with hope as we pursue holiness. In closing, Jerry Bridges, in his book, The Pursuit of Holiness, he tells about a time when he had an epiphany. And listen to what he says. He says this. He says, one day as I was reading the second chapter of 1 John, which, by the way, tells us not to love the things of the world. As I was reading the second chapter of 1 John, I realized that my personal life's objective regarding holiness was less than that of John's. He, John, was saying, in effect, make it your aim not to sin. Bridges says this, as I thought about this, I realized that deep within my heart, my real aim was not to sin very much. He says, can you imagine a soldier going into battle with the aim of not getting hit very much? But oftentimes, that's how we live our lives. You see, John's aim was not to sin. To live in holiness. What an epiphany that Jerry Bridges had. And as those of us who've been given the free gift of salvation, we should be those who are living with hope in the return of Christ. And as we live with that hope, we are to be those who are pursuing holiness. Why? I'll tell you why. Verse 16, because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy.
Let's pray. Father, help us in this. Father, we cannot do this on our own, in our own strength, in our own power. We need Your Spirit. We need to depend upon Your Spirit. We need to walk in the Spirit so that we do not fulfill the desires of the flesh. Father, we thank You for the hope that we have in Christ Jesus our Lord. We thank You that He will return That He is coming again to take us to be with You. To glorify us. To give us a glorified body. To complete our salvation. So that we would live with You for all of eternity. Oh, we thank You for that confident expectation that we have of Christ's return. But Father, until He returns, help us to live as children of obedience. Help us to honor You. Help us to turn from sin, to repent of sin, to die to self, to put off the old self and put on the new, and to live in holiness. For that is what you've commanded us to do. Father, we thank you that you are a forgiving God. That when we do sin against you, you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Oh God, may that be our heart's desire. To turn from sin, to run to you, and to continue day and night, daily, running to you walking according to the Spirit, living in obedience to You. Father, we pray for anyone who is here this morning who is a son of disobedience, who is not Your child, who has not repented of their sin and trusted in Christ alone for salvation. Father, we pray that You would draw them to Yourself, that they would be changed by You, that You, God, would grant them repentance and faith, that they would be forgiven of their sin, that they would fall on their knees before you and cry out for your grace, and that you, God, would save them through the blood of your Son, who rose again on the third day and who offers eternal life to all who come to him. Lord, we thank you for the great salvation that you've given to us. Help us to live our lives in light of that magnificent salvation, all for your glory and your glory alone, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.